0: everyone welcome to an episode of theology for mountain climbers and today I'm going to share with you a little thing that I wrote probably about a year ago about why I believe in continuationism and I really just wrote it out for myself it really wasn't anything that at the time that I was writing it for I I didn't post it anywhere it was just something that I wanted to work through with myself I I have a history of being a part of a tribe uh, previously that was strictly sensationist. I used to be very Calvinistic, and uh, I I mean that wholeheartedly. I, I wasn't. I didn't dabble in it a little bit. I mean, for about ten years, shortly after I became a Christian, um, I became a Christian at the age of sixteen, and shortly after I became a Christian, I I began reading sermons of, of from Charles Spurgeon and became convinced of Calvinism and kind of went from him to people like Paul Washer and. John MacArthur and John Piper, Mark Dever, so on and so forth, and really became to the point where uh, you I wouldn't even want to classify myself as a five-point Calvinist, but more of like a John Piper's version of a full seven-point Calvinist. And a part of that group, for the most part, you have cessationism, which is the belief that the spiritual gifts that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 uh, it's mentioned elsewhere, but for the most part, that's where we get a lot of our doctrine, First Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. And they would believe that those spiritual gifts, the sign gifts, have uh, ceased after the death of the last apostle. And so after the first century apostles, that this is what now we live in, the church age, and that these spiritual gifts are no longer needed because we have the closing of the New Testament canon, uh, 27 books of the New Testament, we have that, so we no longer need the spiritual gifts, is what they would say. Uh, I'm of the belief and of the party of uh, continuationism, which believes that these gifts are currently still for today. But uh, previously, I was uh, a cessationist, and I wasn't like really into it for a while until I really started listening to people like uh, Wretched Radio, like uh, Todd Friel, and of course, it used to be Way of the Master Radio when I first Read it. So I, I kind of, the succession of that happened from me finding these videos on YouTube, Way of the Master, and being really interested in them. Like, I was just a new Christian. I was really excited about wanting to share my faith, share what I've learned about Jesus and salvation and the Bible, and want to share this with other people. But I, I didn't really have a, a system, I, I, I didn't really have anything in my toolbox that I really felt comfortable sharing with people. So many people had so many different ways of doing it. And so I, I, I kind of liked the aspect of the Way of the Master Radio, or excuse me, Way of the Master itself, because it gave me a, a nice little clean format, something that I could share. You know, their, their way of doing it is bringing law and then gospel, law and then grace. And so they would bring up the Ten Commandments or a few of the commandments to kind of soften the heart and then bring forth the gospel. And that really appealed to me. And after I listened to it for so long of a time and watched Way of the Master Radio, I took some of their classes, went through uh, about anything that I could of Way of the Master uh, content, I became really interested in the radio program, which was led by Todd Friel. Now it's known as Wretched Radio. And I think it's a TV show, uh, very popular on YouTube, and then also it's a it's a radio program. And I learned a lot of my cessationist uh, foundation from Todd Friel and from this show. And it, it got to the point at which it w- started to become – very uh, drudgery for me it, it was very heavy on my Christian walk I saw everything as uh, purely logical everything was very rational about my faith so on, on the show Todd Friel talked a lot about how uh, God does not speak to you personally anymore more other than the Word of God which I would definitely agree absolutely God speaks to you through the the uh, the Bible through the scripture um, but also you can speak to your heart through uh, th- other ways as well and uh, that was one thing that Todd Friel would d- definitely disagree with is one thing that uh, I myself strictly adhere to because uh, you know the way that charismatics or anybody who believe that type of uh, g- the gifts that are currently still for today for the church age they were kind of miss uh, they were kind of painted as very ugly and kind of painted as just crazies. They, they don't really adhere to Scripture. They don't really uh, care much about the Bible. They don't really care much about uh, rational... All they care about is their feelings. All they really care about is what I myself have, have felt and I myself have experienced. And they kind of just close their eyes and, and close their ears to Scripture. And so that was my characterization of what charismatics were like. That's what my characterization of really just continuationists was like. And it came up to a time when this door was open for me. It was while I was still a Calvinist, and the, this door just kind of opened up to me. by I, I ran across this sermon that John Piper had did had done, and it was on Martin Lloyd-Jones, and it was on the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It was interesting to me because I guess I kind of knew that John Piper was a continuationist, but I didn't really pay too much attention to it at the time. I, I didn't have, uh, I wasn't studying it too much, and so I came across it and I was like, "Wow, this is interesting." And so I, I listened to it, and John Piper. Uh, well, it was his biography sketch of, you know, at his. National Pastoral Conferences for Desiring God. He gives this biographical sketch of, uh, of a certain leader in the church, and he did Martin Lloyd-Jones, and then he did the Martin Lloyd-Jones view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. That was really different for me. Uh, I never would have pictured it. I knew that Martin Lloyd-Jones was heavily, heavily Reformed, uh, extremely Calvinistic. I thought, man, here's a very rational person. Here's a very Scripture-loving man of God that also believes in the baptism of the Holy Spirit. He also believes in the continuation of the spiritual gifts. And John Piper believes in the continuation of the spiritual gifts. I'm like, I have to find out more about this. So I listened to that. It's like an over It's over an hour long, I believe. I think it's like an hour and 15 minutes, something like that. I was blown away with it. And it kind of opened up a whole other door for me. After that, I encountered uh, Sam Storms, a, another very Calvinistic person, and... He also is a continuationist. Matt Chandler is a continuationist. Uh, Mark Dever is not too open about it, but he, he did he does mention, I have run across some things that he has said that definitely leans toward continuationism. And I'm like, man, if these people can hold to this and still be, like, the, the we can see the wedding of Scripture and the Spirit, and we can see the wedding of rationality and also believe that the Holy Spirit can move upon people, and these gifts are still here for today, and open up a whole another world for me. And I I realize then that these people who are believe in continuationism aren't aren't all crazies. <laughs> they always they always point to the 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 people that are just really out there. But these people were rational. They st- stood firm on the word of God, and then they also strict. They also very heavily believed in the power of the Holy Spirit, as that we see in these gifts. And so I kind of broke the door for me it broke the ice because some of the all of the arguments that i have used to support for cessationism slowly began to crumble and i really had to f- put words to what i was experiencing and and so that was basically kind of the last nail in the coffin for cessationism for me and eventually i i got out of calvinism uh, as well maybe not got out of his the right term but i i just uh, dropped it and no longer calvinistic but while I was looking at this, I, I had – and while I was processing this, I had to write it down for myself and kind of just get a few points, some of the biggest arguments that I can think of. What are some of the biggest arguments that cessationists will use to support their theory, support this doctrine? So I'm like, well, I'll look at some of those big arguments, and I'll try and uh, reason within myself of why I do not believe this. So basically I wrote down several points of the reasons why I myself am not a sensationist, but a continuationist. And this is in-house fighting. So I firmly and strictly even though I've been a continuationist for several years now, I very, very uh, aff- much affirm the fact that cessationists are my brothers and sisters in Christ. This is in-house fighting, this is family fighting. this is uh, family discussion. This is not herit- this is not uh, those who stand for the truth and against heretics. This is not uh, cr- uh, believers against unbelievers. this is, and, and most sensationists would agree with that as well i mean I, I don't I don't know of anyone even the very hard sensationists that would say that those who believe in continuationism uh, are damned or they're, they're heretics or anything like that they might get a little bit over to when you start getting to like Bethel Church and stuff like that i know people like Phil Johnson and Todd Friel and John MacArthur use them very often as examples and they kind of uh, lump them all together with uh, continuationists all together as well, and they kind of uh, make a broad stroke of all continuationists according to their movement. And I do know it; it, it is unfair, um, because not everybody in that movement, or not everybody that is a continuationist, not everybody who believes in the charismatic gifts of the Spirit are for today, not everybody would affirm everything that Bethel does, uh, neither would they affirm everything that Bethel Church believes. But I understand why they would have certain things like Strange Fire Conference and the writing of Strange Fire and the compilation of these doctrines, uh, refutations of of uh, continuationism, and they kind of point a lot toward Bethel Church because it's, it's the big thing. A lot of people are quoting them. There's a lot of things written about them. Uh, whether you agree or whether you disagree, you still have to affirm the fact that they are quite popular for today. And so the gifts that I'm looking at, the gifts that I'm referring to, for the reason why I believe them. Uh, I, I say that they're sign gifts, their power gifts are re- revelatory gifts. So sensationism would definitely believe in the operation of gifts that are re- mentioned in uh, Romans uh, chapter 12. Uh, they believe in the current a- a operation of gifts listed in Romans chapter 12 verses three through 8 with the exclusion of prophecy. So they had also affirmed gifts in First Peter chapter 4 verses 10 through 11. They would absolutely affirm gifts of teaching, administration, things like that, gifts of helps. Where they kind of disagree, where they really disagree, is the sign gifts, the power gifts, the revelatory gifts. They would have trouble agreeing with the statement that God still gives revelatory words, that God gives prophecy, things like that. And... Even that term, using that a lot, I'm a little cautious of using. Even though the the scriptures do use that term in talking about the gift of prophecy, talking about the gift of, of, of wisdom, is that it's a revelation, and and we say that in how we deduce this gift of prophecy, that it's it's revelation, and it is uh, it is interpretation and its application, and. But for some people, that term revelation can really freak a lot of people out. You say that that God has revealed this to me, or something like that, and and you want to be cautious of how you do it. Uh, Mike Bickle talks about how you re, you can repackage prophecy. You know, I, I've known a lot of that may not necessarily. I I used to go to a Baptist church for a while, and and I don't know if everybody there was necessarily hard sensationist, but they may not necessarily affirm all of the gifts. But they would very readily say things like. You know, if they had a guest speaker and they brought him up and they say, "Share the message that you believe that God has laid upon your heart." Well, that's almost the exact same thing that I would say in using terms like revelation and prophecy. It's just a repackaging a little bit, and some no nobody would have a real big problem with that. I mean, there might be the hard-nosed sensationists like Todd Friel or Phil, Phil Johnson or John MacArthur may have may have a lot harder time using those terms um as a cont- continuationist, I do believe in those gifts and the continuation of them um, and I list several reasons here. I don't think I'll go through all my reasons right now in this podcast I want to c- kind of keep this short for this time um, So I'll just go through uh, some of the biggest ones, some of the main ones uh, The first one is because I, I am not a sensation I'm not a sensationist because I do not believe that the perfect that Paul refers to in First Corinthians chapter 3:10 is the New Testament Canon So let's read uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. I'm reading from the English Standard Version right now. Let's read uh, chapter 13, verse 1. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not it does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So Paul's sandwiching this between the discussion of spiritual gifts in First Corinthians chapter twelve, and then he ends it in first Corinthians chapter fourteen of talking about Predominantly, it's the gifts of tongues, the interpretation of tongues, and revelatory gifts such as uh, prophecy. It goes on in verse 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then, face to face. Now I know in part; then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide; these three, but the greatest of these, is love. This chapter is talking about the transient nature of some of these things, that's a, as opposed to love, which is eternal. Love never ends. The other things that Paul mentions, the other things that Paul lists, is transient. They're temporary. They are not eternal like love is. This emphasis is very important to remember for both Corinthians and for us since the spiritual gifts were being abused in their church. And they very often can be abused in our context as well. Love was not key to what they were doing. Love was not key to what they were practicing. So our main focus is on verses 8-12. through Paul says that prophecies will pass away. Tongues will cease, and so will knowledge. Now, when he says that term, knowledge, he's probably referring to the utterance of knowledge that he mentions in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8, and he mentions that that will pass away. So even the Corinthians, or even the continuationists, sorry, would affirm a type of sensationism. It's just that our timing is different. We would say, yeah, it is true, tongues will cease. Gift of prophecy will cease we just don't believe they've ceased yet. It's just going to be at another time when the perfect comes. Those things cease. Love still remains. There is a ceasing of these gifts, but we would just disagree with cessationists in saying that the time, their timing is off. Verse 10 says that when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away with. Now, the big question is, of course, what is the perfect? Cessationists, for so long, and I'm not exactly sure uh, where this comes from, whether if it's from B.B. B. Warfield, or whether if it comes from certain people like Walter Chantry, or the signs of the apostles, or or where, or where, maybe it's a mixture of all of them, but where exactly they get the idea that uh, this perfect, this text exactly is uh, referring to the New Testament canon. This was a popular view for, for years, and it's still used, but it is getting less and less used, I will say. There are people like Thomas Schreiner, who is a cessationist, but I will say He's a very graceful sensationist, as far as I can tell. I mean, his books that talks about uh, spiritual gifts, he mentions that he could be wrong on this. And he's really, a, he's really a humble person when he brings about certain things like this, because he is a sh- he's a very strong uh, complementarian, but yet he even mentions something that belongs of the like, that there are things about uh, egalitarianism that's hard for him to reconcile, like the idea of female prophets. That's kind of hard for him to reconcile in the New Testament, that there are female prophets prophets now where exactly the idea of this uh, of the fact that for so long people have thought that the perfect that's referred to here is the closing of the new testament canon sensationists will say that the perfect is referring to the completion of the new testament so once the canon the 27 books of the new testament were completed then signs and wonders were no longer needed they would strictly affirm the fact that Throughout scripture, you see a lot of signs and wonders affirming, validating the messenger and their message. Moses, for instance, how will they know that you have sent me? God gives him signs. Jesus mentions that if you're not going to believe me for the words, believe the very signs, believe for the very reason of the signs. Believe the signs themselves. These should be evidence. And... It will say, well, if these are referred to as the signs of the apostles, like they do in Second Corinthians, which we'll get into later, then these are just gifts to validate the fact that this is the message that has indeed been given by God. This is not proof that these gifts continue on throughout the rest of the age, but they were no longer needed once the New Testament canon was closed, once we had the completion of the New Testament canon. Now, there is definitely praiseworthy to the fact of that there is a high view of Scripture that's seen there. Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. There is a high view of Scripture. And that is definitely praiseworthy. Now, continuationists, like myself, will say that the perfect that Paul writes about is something else. It is not the completion of the New Testament canon. The perfect, it, uh, people will say that, well, it's, it's probably, th- it's just Jesus coming back. I, I'm not so sure whether if it's referring to specifically that one act of the return of Christ. You refer to it as the return of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ, new heavens, new earth, whatever. I, I don't think Paul is referring to just one specific event. I don't think he's necessarily saying, well, when that these gifts will cease once Jesus returns. I think this is kind of compilation of all of his eschatology. I think he's saying as, as Jesus returns, as the new heavens and the new earth comes about, that all these things are being renewed, almost kind of like we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, that when the mortal puts on immortality, I think that's what he's kind of more referring to, the fact. I mean, he's not very specific. He, he does mention the fact that it just refers to it as the perfect. Well, I, I think he may necessarily be referring to something that is in the future. I don't think it was just the fact of him referring to the fact that he's going to one day die and and go to heaven and then that's going to be the ceasing. I think he's referring to something that future going to happen. New heavens and new earth. These gifts will no longer be needed. Then we will see face to face. So if the perfect is the completion of the New Testament canon, why would Paul even hint at the fact that love is ending? He mentions that. Why would he even hint at it? I know that's not a very strong argument. It's kind of Uh, small but it is an interesting detail why would he even mention the fact that love is not going to end if he's referring to the closing of the new testament canon just uh just down the road in time verse 9 paul writes that prophecies tongues and knowledge will pass away but that love will never pass away maybe that's a silly thing to note the fact of the continuation of love but why would paul even hint at saying that love will pass away around the third or fourth century Granted, this isn't a strong case from my side, but it does seem kind of odd for Paul to write this if the canon is what he had in mind. It may also seem a little odd that Paul even has something like a specific time frame such as the closing of the New Testament in mind. Do we really think that's what Paul had at the forefront of his mind? That once you complete the New Testament canon, once this thing is complete, then that's going to be the end of the sign gifts because you no longer need them. I don't think Paul had that type of mind. I I don't think that's what was on the forefront of his mind. He doesn't seem to talk about it anywhere else. Why here? Did Paul even conceive of the fact that there is going to be a closing of the canon or what the canon exactly would be? Verse 12 seems to be key in trying to understand the perfect in verse 10. So the fully knowing seems to be referring to heaven or the future aspect of eschatology of the kingdom of heaven, the new heaven, the new earth. And that's going to be when the gifts cease and love still abides. He seems to be saying that he himself will experience this that's key to it paul seems to be indicating that he himself is a part of this completion he himself is going to be a part of experiencing the perfect love never ends as for prophecies they will pass away as for tongues they will cease. as for knowledge it will pass away for we know in part and we prophesy in part is looking forward to, something that he himself is going to experience. If it was something that really just happened around the uh, compilation of the New Testament in 380 AD, and Paul died somewhere, it's kind of rough, but it's 64-67 AD, somewhere around that timeline, why would Paul think that he gets to see himself experience the completion of this New Testament? It would seem to me that the best interpretation would be that Paul's referring to something heavenly. Something in his eschatology that all Christians are going to get to experience. Now, my second one, I think I'm just going to go to my second point, and then I'm going to end because it's getting a little bit uh, longer than I necessarily expected. But my second point is the fact that uh, the reason I'm a continuationist, because I do not believe that the spiritual gifts were exclusive to the apostles. Another strong argument. The argument that cessation is commonly used is the sign gifts, such as prophecy, gifts of healings, tongues, etc., was only for the apostles. And so when the last apostle died, the gifts ceased. The gifts, they will say, was only for the apostles so that their message had the affirmation of God upon them that they could display to the world. So it was a confirmation of their message that they were giving the people. Think of Moses, sorry I mentioned Moses, and, th- and th- really think of Jesus as well, that he did a lot of signs, and he mentions that that was a confirmation that the Father was with him, the confirmation of the seal of the sign of the Father. Signs were given to Moses to prove that he was set by God in Exodus, Now the main verse that people mention, 2 Corinthians 12, 12, and, th- and this is, I've, I've read Thomas Schreiner, and this is kind of his big driving force, and I think it's Walter Chantry's big driving force of the the name of his book, uh, Signs of the Apostles, that these were just affirmation. This was just validating the message of the apostles. 2 Corinthians 12.12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. So the signs of a true apostle, Paul is saying. So let's go with the framework that the sensationist understands and interprets this verse. According to the cessationist, these signed gifts are only available to the first century apostles. But we have to ask, do we see gifts such as prophecy and the others exhibited by any other Christian in the New Testament who is not an apostle? Okay, so if these gifts are only for the apostles, do we only ever see the apostles use these gifts? Now, I think there's two layers to this. The cessationist would have two different aspects to this terminology, I'd have to answer, absolutely we see other people use these gifts. On the day of Pentecost, uh, Peter quoted Joel and declared in chapter 2, verses 17 through 18 in Acts, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. Isn't that a point that Peter's making? The fact, yeah, I mean, right then in that moment, it was only the apostles that were experiencing this. But the fact that he brings up this this distinction in classes, that it's on equal footing, free people, slaves, sons, daughters, male, female, classes, there's no distinction between classes, there's no distinction between genders, that's all on equal footing, that all shall experience gifts, also dream dreams. And the question is, and this is something that Dr. Michael Brown points out a lot, is when has God brought that back up? The Holy Spirit has been poured out. These sign gifts are being displayed here in the New Testament era. And when did God decide that to bring that back up? Okay, we poured out himself upon the earth, and now I'm just going to bring it back up. And uh, you all are kind of just on your own now. <laughs> Acts chapter 6 tells us that Stephen, who is a deacon, was doing great wonders and sighings among the people. Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Philip, the evangelist, is said to have four unmarried daughters who prophesied. In Acts 13, 1, we are told there are prophets and teachers in the church at Antioch. Those probably all weren't apostles. Prophets... Kind of denote the gift of prophecy, do they not? In Acts eleven twenty-seven through thirty, in Acts twenty-one ten through twelve, we read of a New Testament prophet named Agabus. Well, to be a prophet, you probably have to have the gift of prophecy. Why else are you called a prophet? It also seems as though Ananias was used by God to heal Saul from his blindness in Acts chapter nine, verses seventeen through nineteen. Remember when when Saul was converted, and Ananias comes to him and lays hands on him, he seems to heal him that god uses him to heal saw the scales from his eyes his blindness the spiritual gifts also seem to be forever christian according to 1 corinthians 12 uh chapter 12 13 and 14 in romans 12 3 through 8 why would paul write about these churches using and handling these gifts properly if the apostles could only exercise these gifts so if these gifts were only for the apostles why would you have a whole church filled with people who could use these gifts? It doesn't seem like it was just a few people. He even mentions the fact that there was a lot of speak- people speaking in tongues. He mentions the fact that, for you can all prophesy. Well, was the church just filled with apostles? Another f- side of this view says that uh, people, so this is the second layer. It said that people could receive these gifts, but only of the laying on in the hands by the apostles. So... This argument is a little bit tougher because it is a little bit more of substantial, and it really does have a little bit more girth to it because the fact of, well, yeah, I mean, you, you could easily say that not everybody here has to be an apostle to accept to have these gifts, but people could say, well, it's the laying on of hands. To the apostles and then they receive these gifts and we see a lot of people receive the gift of speaking in tongues when the apostles pray for people so yeah that, that's a little bit of a stronger argument i still don't believe it but it's a little bit of a better argument now we do see the narrative of acts of people receiving certain activities such as speaking in tongues when the apostle lays their hands on them and prays for them but why would we think this is the only way people can receive these gifts and why in the mention of first corinthians 12 13 and 14 in all of the talk about gifts Does Paul never mention the laying on of hands? And why does Paul say that they should earnestly desire spiritual gifts? 1 Corinthians 14. People point out the fact that Paul mentions in 1 Corinthians that you earnestly desire spiritual gifts, and I will still show you a better way. And they'll say, see, Paul is refuting that. Well, 1 Corinthians 14, he isn't. He says to pursue love and earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially that you may prophesy. Well, how is there a, a earnestly pursuing this gift? This gift can really only be brought about by the laying on of hands. Why doesn't Paul just say, I'm going to send an apostle to you, lay hands on you? If these gifts can only come about by the laying on of hands, it's hard to be convinced the fact that Paul is saying that. And did people receive something because it was an apostle, or was it because God had specifically blessed that method of laying on of hands? Jesus laid on hands quite a bit the way in which he healed. Now in 2 Timothy 1.6, Paul writes that Timothy received the gift of God through the laying on of Paul's hands. And in 1 Timothy 4.14, Paul writes, do not neglect the gift you have which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Well, this was a gift of prophecy that was given by the council of elders that laid their hands on them. Now, were these apostles... Um, Was Paul saying that this was the gift that he himself, when he laid his hands on, Timothy had received? I'm not really sure. It's not very specific about that. But it's quite a stretch to say that that is exactly what happened. Um, Some may argue that it wasn't a spiritual gift that Timothy received. But Paul mentions that it is prophecy that Timothy had received through the counsel, through the laying on of hands. So what exactly does 2 Corinthians 12.12 mean? What does it teach us? We see others who exercise these gifts. Some would say that they could become, they could be because the apostles were still alive and they laid hands on them. But my view of Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 12, because it is a tricky one for continuationists, I think. Um, what do we say? That these are the signs of the apostles, that the signs and the wonders. That that's what that is referring to. I, I could be wrong. I tend to think that it is talking about a different degree, a different level. So 2 Corinthians 12, 12 is that Paul is saying that the level and maybe the variety of miracles that's performed by the apostles were very unique. Um, no more scripture. So there's no more authoritative scripture that's being written. We absolutely affirm that. Um, this is the closed canon, 66 books of the Bible. And it could be referring to the fact that their level of authority was unique. I mean, even if you believe that there still are current apostles for our day, you have to agree that those apostles specifically had a unique play in history, had a unique level of authority over the churches that is unparalleled today. Now, you could say, like I I do, I believe that there are people who have apostolic-like ministries that are highly influential. Throughout over several multitude churches, and they could have an apostolic-like ministry. I wouldn't affirm the, and I wouldn't affirm, and I don't know if anybody else would affirm the fact that they are the like capital A apostles of the fact that like of Paul or of Peter or of James or of John, especially the fact that they don't write scripture. I mean, no one would say that it's like a Joseph Smith-type of situation in which they're. Write in Scripture, and it's on the same level as 1 Corinthians, as Acts. I believe that possibly that may be what Paul is getting to, that there's a level that they have that is, is was unique to their time. Now, I hate to point out specifics. I don't want to limit the Holy Spirit and what he could do. Um, I don't want to limit these, uh, saying that these events can never happen again. And I'm not saying that these miracles can never happen. Um, ever again. And maybe somewhere in the world, these things are happening. But when I think of a u- unique level of signs and wonders that accompany the apostles, I think of such things where Peter's shadow, um, people were wanting to get laid out just to even touch Peter's shadow. In Acts 19, verses 11 through 12, God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched the skin were carried away to the sick, and their diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. That's a unique level of ministry, a unique level of miracles. I don't want to say necessarily that that can't ever happen again, or maybe that is happening somewhere. I don't know. But I think there's a, there is a unique blessing upon their time. Now, this could be a possible interpretation of Second Corinthians 12.12. 12. Another could be that these uh, because these signs validate the message and ministry of the apostles, doesn't mean that this was their only use. Yeah, well, maybe it did validate. Uh, Maybe it's just referring to all gifts in general. Yes, they did validate the apostles. But it doesn't mean that was their only use. If that was the case, why would Paul write the fact that prophecy is used for the consolation, for the edification, for the encouragement of the church, if it was only for a select few? I think we still need that, don't you? I think we still need that level of encouragement, that level of consolation, that level of edification. A cessationist would deny tongues, prophecy, gifts of healings, etc. And what I'm saying is that maybe with the apostles there was a certain central focus on miracles, signs, and wonders that was unique to their time, and also that they had a level of authority that was unparalleled for us today that the canon is indeed closed. Um, I I have some more points, but I'm going to go ahead and end there. Um, So thank you for joining us for this episode, and I hope to produce more content for you and continue on and for reasons why I am a continuationist. And I hope that this has blessed you. Thank you.